Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Judith Weiss of Rutgers University. I should mention that Dr. Weiss is also a former AIBS president, member of the Bioscience Editorial Board, and last and certainly least previous guest on this podcast. I'll link to that episode in the show notes. She joined me today to talk about her new book, Polluting Textiles, The Problem with Microfibers. And with no further ado, let's go straight to that interview. All right. Thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Okay. So we're going to be talking today largely about the microfibers that come from textiles. But before we get into that too far, I was hoping you could tell us just a little bit about, you know, the history of microplastics as they're found in the environment. You know, what kind of stuff are we, you know, really looking at and what sort of stuff are we finding when we, you know, say do a sampling of ocean water? Well, it was not too long ago that people discovered tiny pieces of plastic polluting initially the oceans and then subsequently fresh waters and subsequently the air and the soil. And it's just about everywhere on the planet. They're tiny pieces of plastic. Then um, they call it microplastics. They're uh, under five millimeters in size and they range in size down to about a micron uh, and then below that, they're called nanoplastics. Um, now, when they first discovered microplastics, there was a lot of attention paid to plastics that were shaped like, like beads or, or spheres that were being used in uh, personal care products, toothpaste and scrubs and stuff to provide abrasion. And there was a law that got passed, the only law this country has passed yet, dealing with this kind of pollution problem. And so now they no longer use the plastic in those products. So that when you do surveys for uh, microplastics, you find that these uh, beads are now a very minor component of um of what's out there okay so we're seeing declining quantities of you know these bead microplastics and that's good um but i'm wondering now if you can tell us a little bit about the microfibers and also i think importantly is something you discussed in the book is the idea of sampling um, and how the wrong types of sampling will lead you to not find things like microfibers so if you could just kind of get us started on that topic i think we'll have more to jump into so the um way you collect is really important in determining what you find if you're looking to collect microplastics in a body of water. Uh, people tend to um, traditionally, and, and many of them still do, use plankton nets. Um, and plankton nets have a fairly small mesh compared to, let's say, a net for catching fish or something. And um, and they get it and they, they look and see what different shapes and different colors and different sizes they get. The problem with these nets, as I learned as a student uh, at Woods Hall many, many years ago, um, when you're collecting things with a net, things that are long and thin have a much greater chance of getting through the holes in the net and not being captured. So we were told when you're looking for diatoms, single-celled 
plants that are, you know, doing most of the photosynthesis in the seas, uh, you're not going to get the species that are long and thin. Uh, you may get a few, but that you they'll be greatly underrepresented. And the same thing applies when you're using the same kind of nets to catch microplastics. The ones that are long and thin tend to go through and are greatly undercounted in samples compared to what's really out there. And uh, what are these things that are long and thin? They're called microfibers. That they're, they're a type of microplastic, uh, and they are um, there because they fall off our clothing. Our, our clothing, the synthetic clothing, uh, which is made of polyester or poly whatever, uh, basically plastic. And it sheds these fibers wherever we go. It sheds them a whole lot in washing machines and in dryers, but it also sheds them as we walk around the street. It sheds them while they're being made. It sheds them when they're at the end of life, gone to a garbage dump or wherever they end up. So um, it turns out if you collect samples properly, and by properly, I mean not using nets, but using uh, collecting bottles, whole water samples, and then putting the water through a filter, um, that's when you get, when you'll see that the, the largest fraction of the microplastics that you get are these fibers, the long, thin ones from clothing that comprise maybe an average of about 35% of the sample is, is, are these microfibers. The next com most common type are um, tire wear particles. And then all the other things put together make up the rest of it. But uh, by far, first, the microfibers from clothes, and secondly, the tire wear particles are the most abundant types of microplastics out there. And that, that goes for the air and the soil and, the, and, the, and you know, fresh water and, and marine water and so forth. Well, that's really alarming in terms of the you know proportion and also the fact that it might have been missed by some sampling methods. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know some of the types of clothing that actually are you know the most implicated in this type of problem. Uh, so I first became aware of the issue as somebody who's really into hiking, and one of the things that we typically wear is a fleece, um, you know, which is a usually polyester, um, slightly puffy, loose knit kind of um, fabric that. Generally speaking, warm when wet, breathable, um, you know, pretty comfortable piece. But unfortunately, it's also, I believe, one of the worst offenders in terms of throwing out these microfibers. Okay, the looser the fabric, uh, the worse they, sh the more they shed. So yes, absolutely. Um, I had read about uh, an idea. I don't know if it's uh, if it's being made yet, but. The idea of uh, making another layer in the fleece jacket, you know, like the inside of the fleece is a tightly woven thing, and then the outside is the soft, fuzzy fleece part. Put another layer on the outside 
like the inside layer so that the fleece is in the middle of a sandwich kind of thing in which case it's not going to be shedding yeah i mean not nearly as much anyway um so that seemed like a pretty easy fix if the companies making the clothing were to do that um that would reduce i mean certainly the the tighter weave fabrics are shedding too but not anywhere near as much as the loose and the fleece is, is probably the worst of the loose, you know, weave. Yeah. And that makes a heck of a lot of sense too, from a, a performance characteristic standpoint, because the, the, the problem with fleece, if you're you know wearing it out in cold weather is that wind cuts right through it, of course, because of that loose weave. Um, and so a lot of times people are wearing wind jackets over them anyway. So maybe, maybe there's something to be said for having that sort of, um, you know, thin, breathable, you know, layer on top that at least stops some of the shedding as well. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, can we talk a little bit about what happens with these fibers when they're actually in the environment? I think, you know, it seems, at least to me, kind of obvious on its face that having a bunch of plastic in, you know, the oceans and freshwaters and in every animal and in the air is not an ideal situation. But what are some of the actual threats that are posed by, you know, having this concentration of plastic everywhere? Well, you know, they've been found in um, many kinds of animals. They've been found in people, they found in, in human uh, lungs, in, in um, placentas, in, in breast milk. So they're, you know, they're throughout our body. Somebody says we eat the equivalent of, um, of a credit card worth of plastic every month, I think. I forget if it was every month or every week. This is an alarming thing. Um, we're getting them in by eating and also by breathing. It's They're in the air, so we're breathing them in as well as consuming them in our food. Uh, in, the, in the marine environment, they get eaten by little critters, uh, plankton, larval fish, clams, mussels, uh, bigger and bigger animals too. And, and uh, you know, they, in some cases, might just go through the digestive tract and out the other end and not be a problem. Uh, but in other cases, they might be able to penetrate through the intestine and get out into other organs of the body. That, that's one thing that needs a lot more study. There are so many reports about microplastics are found in this species. Microplastics are found in that species. And generally, that means they looked in the intestine, they looked in the digestive system, and they found them there. Now, that's not necessarily a problem if they just go through and out the other end. And what we need to know is what, you know, can they get through? Do they, how much of them get through, like the that the, when we break down protein to amino acids, we break down sugars to glucose, it goes through our intestinal wall into our bloodstream blood and goes around our body to be nutrition. Now, is that happening? To what degree does that happen with the plastics? And that will depend on, I mean, microplastics are not a thing. They are a whole collection of things. They are many different chemicals, polyester, polypropylene, polystyrene, poly, you know, a, a whole 
you know, mouthful of poly this and that, that are the basic chemicals, plus they have additional chemical additives put in, some of which are really pretty scary, like phthalates and bisphenol A, for example, that are some of the additives in there. Uh, and while they're in the environment, they may pick up on the outside of a particle. They can pick up, you know, environmental chemicals like DDT or PCBs and these other other kinds of of contaminants, toxic contaminants, glom onto the outside of these particles. And and the, the one issue is while they're passing through the intestine, whether or not the particle itself penetrates to go through the bloodstream to other tissues, do these chemicals get pulled off and, and you know, adds and become uh, in, in the animal's body tissues? Um, that, that's, that's, that's a major concern. It, it's not necessarily the the plastic itself, but the chemicals attached to it on the outside or that might leach out from the inside um, that can get into the tissues of the animal and cause damage. So it's, it's a whole tricky thing to try to figure out effects that might be seen. Is it due to the plastic itself or is it due to the associated chemicals Okay, so it sounds like in this case, as in so many others that we wind up talking about on this show, there is a great deal of nuance involved and complexity that's you know much more so than you know we might often see reflected in the media and stuff like that. Um, but I'm wondering now, you know, we've kind of established that these things have the potential of causing grievous environmental harm and you know doing bad things to the various you know creatures living within the environment. Um, where's the right place to address this issue? Is this something that you know we should be you know trying to out fit our individual laundry machines with mechanisms to fix things? Is this a wastewater treatment issue? You know, where do we really get started? It's all of the above. It can be treated, it can be dealt with in, in many different ways. Uh, they found that um, in washing machines, if you use a front-loading washing machine, the clothes don't release as many microfibers as if you use a top loader. If you use a lot of detergent, they shed more. If you use hot water, they shed more. So there's different ways in the washing process. It, it, and of course, it's also recommended to, you know, maybe you don't have to wash your clothes all that often, you know, wear them a little more before you wash them and don't do a load until you have a full load. They have also got some devices that can be on or in the washing machine that can trap some of the microfibers. There's, uh, there's a thing called a Cora ball, which is a plastic <laughs> uh, object that has things sticking out of it. Uh, this is the time when you wish there was a visual here on this on a podcast, but um, that, you know, will entang entangle and trap a lot of the microfibers coming off the clothes, but it, it traps about one fourth of them. 
And, and that's a significant number because we're talking about many, many, many thousands. Um, and then there's a, a bag called the guppy bag, which um, you put the clothes in the bag and then put the bag full of clothes into the washing machine. And, and that captures a similar amount. And then there's also filters. And there's, there's a filter you can buy separate and attach it to your machine that is very efficient, will capture, um, capture like 95% of them, really does a wonderful job. And there's also filters that can be built into washing machines that trap them. And by the way, France has has passed the law saying as of 2025, all wash, new washing machines sold have to come equipped with one of these filters. So France is taking the lead on, on that kind of um, law. But there are other things that, that can be done. Um, I mean, a person can... If you have a house and a yard and a clothesline, you can avoid the shedding in the in the dryer by hanging your clothes up to dry instead. Um, so that's another thing that individuals can do. Um, then there's there's the things that can be done at the level of um, the sewage treatment plants. Now um, dealing with what's coming out from the wastewater, from the washing machines. Um, the sewage treatment plants do a pretty good job. They capture about 90 to 95% of the microfibers coming in from the wastewater. And, and, but still, of course, you've got 95% of millions and millions of these things. You're still having a heck of a lot going out. But then um, looking at where most of them go, a sewage treatment plant basically is, separates out the solid waste from the liquid waste. And, and, and when we say that it captures most of the fibers, it's capturing them out of the liquid and, puts, and they are therefore ending up in the solid phase, which is called sludge. Uh, and what is done with the sludge? Now, that varies from place to place. But some places, if it's not too chemically polluted, will use the sludge uh, on agricultural fields. It's a very good fertilizer. But it's loaded with microplastics. And, uh, you know, it's uh, instead of having uh, people eating the microplastics in their fish, they're going to be eating the microplastics in their vegetables. If the vegetables are being grown on fields that are being fertilized with sewage sludge. So it's a matter of moving the problem from one place to another. And, and that's something that, you know, Governments have to decide what to do about this. You know, uh, uh, there's no place away. You know, <laughs> one thing you learn in the environmental field, you know, something went away. 
there really is no place that's away. Um, so a question, uh, one more question on the personal consumer type front um, before we kind of move into maybe some of the, the possible policy prescriptions. Um, but on that personal side, what would you recommend someone do if they're someone like me, uh, you know, who can look at a, a dresser behind them and go, ah, there's a lot of there's a lot of polyester clothing in there. There's a lot of fleece in there. Um, I know typically the right way to deal with, you know, um, you know, an environmentally problematic something that you own is not to replace it immediately because that has its own problems. But, you know, should people be replacing their fleeces and, you know, maybe you know, putting them in a lead-lined box or something so that they don't wind up, you know, polluting from the, the landfill um, and, you know, moving to fibers like, you know, merino wool or something like that? Or, you know, should they just be washing occasionally and, you know, try and, you know, mitigating things at their laundry machine at, at that point? You know, what's what's the best angle if you've already got a lot of this stuff? I, I have... I have one fleece jacket, and I don't wash it. I don't wear it all the time. But, you know, since I learned about it, I, I it sits in the closet most of the time. But I, you know, I, I refrain from, I think if, if, if it was really dirty, I would probably try washing it by hand. Well, I mean, you know, that's certainly easy advice to follow. Um, I wanted to talk about, you know, another major focus of the book um, because, you know, it, it really struck me and, and I would also encourage everyone, of course, to go out and buy the book. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but it's the policy stuff. You know, what kinds of things should we be lobbying our politicians for? You know, what kinds of interventions are most likely to kind of yield the best results and limit the amount of microfibers that we have, you know, in our environments? Well, the, I, I think the low-lying fruit is definitely the filter on the washing machine. That, that's the, you know, the easy thing. Other things that have been um, talked about would be um, labeling. You know, if people look at labels in clothing they buy, having a label saying, you know, some, some scale of, how how much this garment is likely to shed. There could be, I mean, one of the, the kinds of legislation that's being talked about a lot is not dealing specifically with the microfibers, but just dealing with plastics in general, is a um, extended producer responsibility law where the plastic manufacturers become responsible for the end of life of what they make. And um, that seems to be the, the approach that, that a lot of uh, environmental groups are um, you kind of uniting to push. Uh, and of course, California's on the lead as they usually are for environmental things. You know, there's all sorts of things that the textile industry can do. Um, and the question is, will they and, and will the public be happy about what they do? Um, you know, the manufacturing, the way they manufacture these things could be altered in, in ways so that they're not shedding so much. And then the end of life story, um, it's, it's not just during the time that the clothing is 
being used by the consumer. But it's the beginning, the manufacturer in the first place, and the end of life, what happens to a garment when, you know, somebody is done with it and it maybe goes to a thrift store, but, you know, it finally is getting um, getting thrown out and, and what happens there. So, I mean, I think there are things that could be done at, at each phase of the life cycle of a textile. Um, I'm wondering if we could pivot a little bit and talk about the book. Uh, one thing I always wonder and and have no view into from you know my uh, perspective as uh, you know a journal editor is you know how a work like this kind of comes together. This is you know um, a, a large book with a massive coverage of this issue. Um, you have you know numerous authors. In fact, it's it's rather hard to get a book review together for a book like this because um, you know everyone in the field who's sort of you know in a leading position is already an author. Yeah, <laughs> it's so awesome. it's tough. Um, you know, how does a book like this come together? I got interested in this issue of about a decade ago, around the time I was ready to retire. So I have never. Um, you know, done hands-on research on microplastics. I, by the time I got interested, I was phasing out the lab and preparing to retire. Um, so I haven't done anything myself, but I got really interested in it. And there was a um, the EPA Region 2, which is the New York's the offices in New York City, the EPA. EPA had has a, a program called Trash-Free Waters. And uh, they started having meetings of people from all over, representatives of different organizations or just scientists or whatever, at EPA Region 2, uh, which is, as I said, in New York City. And I started going to these meetings, and I was meeting a whole lot of people who were you know, in, in environmental organizations or other universities or, or the, the EPA itself and other agencies uh, that were interested in the issues of plastic pollution. And um, there was one of the people that was a regular was a guy who was part of the uh, Joint Commission for Great Lakes, which is Canada and the U.S. And, and he had... He was one of the organizers of a meeting of this joint commission. Uh, and I, this was before the pandemic. And I was in, invited to come to this meeting. And this meeting was just across the border, on the Canada side, Lake Ontario. And um, we had lots of discussions. And that's when it dawned on me. I, I, it, it, it was part of the discussion, the fact that microfibers were the most common type of microplastic. That had not really been in my consciousness before that. And, and I kept saying during discussions, you know, we're all environmental scientists. We can see the problem and study the problem. We can't solve the problem. We need the textile people. We need to be talking to textile people. And so I sort of made that my mission for a few years. AAAS has that annual meeting often in Washington. And, and I, together with somebody else, organized a session 
at AAAS. It was an environmental person. Uh, it was Chelsea Rashman. Um, and a textile person who was the guy from Penn State and a policy person for this AAAS session. So there was bringing together the environmental people and the chemical people. And, and, and it was nice that people were really pleased with that session at the meeting. And, and the next thing it seemed to me, we needed to do a book to bring together chapters from environmental people and chapters from textile people. And so, you know, I was interacting with textile people, but never found someone who really wanted to take on co-editing a book. And then came out, uh, I read this, this great paper. Um, the, the first author was Francesca DeFalco, and the, the final author, the senior scientist involved, was Maria Cristina Coca from Italy. That was a paper in environmental science and technology and was a paper showing that we're shedding them all the time. That was, you know, every, before that, everybody was thinking, well, it's in the washing machine is the problem. And then later, then it was the dryer was the problem. And here's a paper saying we walk around and we're shedding fibers everywhere we go. And, and I wrote to uh, Maria Cristina, who is the senior scientist, asking her if she would be interested. And she said she was. And, and she asked if we could have a, a, a young person also uh, who was the, the first author on the paper, who was her um, senior graduate student. And so sure, so we had the three of us and the two of them found and, and invited and dealt with the chapters from the textile people. And I dealt with the chapters and invited people, you know, who I respected their work uh, to do the environmental chapters. So that's how the book happened. Yeah, and you know, it really shows, I think, in the breadth of the book, you know, that you're able to bring together this sort of diversity of perspectives and industry know-how um, and kind of put it all together into one book that kind of really covers the topic incredibly thoroughly. I'm wondering, you know, um, I'm assuming that you weren't able to get together uh, with all of the authors during the preparation of the book for pandemic reasons and otherwise. Um, but are there any plans to do that in the future? It would have been nice if we could have all gotten together, but that, you know, people are from all over the world. Uh, and then, then the pandemic happened. But um, you know, we didn't all get together. It would be really nice. There is, well, there there are conferences about microplastics that could be a, a place where one might bring all these people together in into one symposium. Um, that that could happen, but. Uh, you know, it would be good to have such a thing, but I think I'm done with my <laughs> efforts of bringing people together. I, I, you know, I said, got to do this, and I did do it. And I think this book shows we can put these people together and look at the problems and, and look at the solutions in, in one book. And, and I'm proud of that. And deservedly so. And I think that's also a great note on which to leave this conversation, of course, with the recommendation to our listeners that they go out and get a copy of this book right away. It's a great lens into a very serious problem and also some of the potential solutions there, too. So uh, go out and get this book. Uh, Dr. Weiss, thank you very much for joining me today. Okay. I enjoyed talking with you.
And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.